invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. We'll start in verse 4 here in a second. We're ending our series today that we've been calling Drawing Near to God. And through it, we've been, we've answered so far two questions. The first question we looked at is, how do we draw near to the Lord through his word? And we talked about how when we're in his word, we're not just studying the Bible, but we're actually drawing near to him through the word of God. And that we do that uh, with confidence and with reverence and with faith. That was first Sunday. Second Sunday, we looked at what is happening as we draw near to the Lord through his word. What's he doing in us? We talked about that as we draw near to Christ through his word, that he's transforming us into the image of his son. Uh, We talked about how we're the new temple and we're the permanent dwelling place of the presence of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about how he gives us a brand new identity in Jesus Christ, that that's what he's doing. And today, we're going to answer the final question. Here's the final question we're going to answer. And it's, why is it so critical that we draw near to Jesus through his word? In other words, why is it so critical that we come to him, that we come to the person of Jesus Christ, not only for our salvation, but we continually draw near to Jesus throughout our entire lives? And Peter's going to answer that question today. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, we're going to focus on 6, but he's going to give us the answer for why it's so critical we draw near to Jesus. Here it is. Here's the answer. Because Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. And we'll talk about what that means with the rest of this message. But let's look at verse 4, 1 Peter 2, 4. Peter says, as you come to him, as you draw near to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse six, we're gonna camp out today. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay. Now, one of the things you may have noticed throughout 1 Peter is that Peter loves to use imagery. When he's making a point, um, he uses things in the world to try to help, uh, help us get our minds around what he's talking about. So, so far in First Peter, he's talking about gold. He's talking about a furnace. He's referenced a newborn baby. He's talked about clothing. He's talking about seeds. He's talking about flowers. He's talking about grass. He's talking about milk. And today, he turns to architecture. He references architecture. He uses architecture as an illustration. And he says that Jesus is our cornerstone. Now, we don't know what that means, but for the original audience, they would have instantly understood what he talked about or what that meant. Because back in the day, and I want you to hear this, back in the day, the cornerstone was the first stone laid in any building. It was the first stone that they laid when they were building something. It was a stone that all the lines and all the dimensions of the building uh, were built on, okay? And so the original audience would have understood that the cornerstone was the single most important rock or the uh, single most important stone in any building. Because if the dimensions of the cornerstone were off, the whole building would be off. If if the cornerstone had any uh, flaws or it had any cracks in it, then it couldn't withstand the weight of the rest of the building. 
and the building would eventually fall. And so when Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone, they would have instantly understood that that he was saying that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the only stone, he's the only rock that can handle the weight of our eternities in our lives. That any other rock, any other foundation that we build our lives on will eventually crumble and fall. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus said in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Okay? He's saying there's one foundation that can withstand the storms of life and that is the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, side note there, one thing that hit me and thought about Little side note is that um, there's this idea out there that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. And just like Confucius or Buddha or whatever, that he's just a guy who had some good things to say, but that he was not the son of God, that he was not God in the flesh. But I wanna tell you why that's absolutely ludicrous and why that thought that he's just a good moral teacher, but he's not God, doesn't make any sense. Because I want you to think about what he just said. Think about what Jesus Christ just claimed. Think about the audacity of what he just said. Jesus Christ just said that when the storms of life come, and they come to all of us, but when they come, there is one foundation that will stand through all the storms of life, and Jesus said, it's me. The only reason you make that statement to the whole world that you are the only foundation that can withstand the storms of life. The only reason you make that statement, number one, is if you're stark raving mad or it's true. And Peter is standing on the other side of the cross and Peter is writing us from the other side of the resurrection and Peter is shouting from the rooftops, it's true. It's all true. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the only foundation that is strong enough for you and I to build our lives on. So here's the point of the sermon today. I want every one of us to answer this question. Is Jesus actually your cornerstone? Is he actually your cornerstone? Is he actually the foundation that you are building your life on? Or is it something else? That's a really important question for all of us to answer Because here's the reality, church, whether or not you want to admit it, whether I want to admit it, the reality is is that everybody here has a cornerstone. Every one of us has a cornerstone. Every single one of us has something or some person that we are building our lives on. The question is, is it Jesus? Is he the cornerstone of our life? or, Or is it someone or something else? Well, Peter in... First Peter 2, 6, he teaches, uh, teaches us a couple of things. Number one is he's gonna, he's gonna tell us how we make Jesus our cornerstone. 
how we ensure that he's the foundation, not only of our eternity, but our life. And the second thing he's going to do is he's going to tell us why it's so critical that Jesus and not someone else or something else be that cornerstone and be that foundation. So let's look first at how Peter says that we make Jesus our cornerstone, that we build our life on him. Look at 1 Peter 2.6 again. Verse 6 He's quoting God here from Isaiah. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in 1 Peter 2, 6, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Now watch what he says next. He says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter said, This is how you make Jesus the cornerstone of your life. He said, You believe in him. That's it. Now, what does he mean there? That you believe in Jesus, and that's how you make him a cornerstone, okay? Well, when we hear that phrase, when we see that phrase, whoever believes in him, what comes to my mind a lot of times is I think that that word believes there means to intellectually believe in something, or it means to intellectually believe something exists, okay? But that's, that's not what the word means, Okay? Um, the word believes there is the Greek word pistuo, okay? P-I-S-T-E-U-O. Now listen carefully, don't miss this. That's not a word that means to intellectually believe something exists, but it's a word that means to place your trust into something. There's a difference, okay? It's the exact same word that Jesus, exact same word Jesus used in John 3.16. In John 3.16, Jesus is speaking, and he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him, same word, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so, Jesus, listen, Jesus is not saying that whoever intellectually believes in Jesus is not gonna perish but have eternal life. He uses the word pistuo, and he's saying whoever trusts into me will not perish but have eternal life. That's what he means. Whoever places their trust into Jesus will experience eternal life. Okay, in other words, when Jesus died on a cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. He was buried three days later. He rose from the grave, conquering sin and death forever. And, and, and for us to go to heaven, we don't just believe that that happened because Satan believes it happened. He ain't going to heaven. We don't just believe that that happened, but we trust into it for our salvation. And that's how we're saved. You guys may notice that when I'm talking about salvation, I typically don't use phrases like, you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, okay? Or I, I don't say things like, hey, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. There's nothing really wrong with those statements, they're just not the statement that Jesus used when he was talking about salvation. When Jesus was talking about salvation, he said you need to believe into him, which means you need to trust in to him. And so when I talk about salvation, I talk about, hey, you need to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay? That's the phrase Peter uses. Let's look at it again. In 1 Peter 2.6, Peter says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And then he says, whoever believes in him, 
whoever trusts into him shall not be put to shame. Now everybody check this out. Jesus said when you trust into him, when you trust into him for your salvation, you receive eternal life. Peter said when you trust in him as your cornerstone, then you will not be put to shame. And those two phrases right there summarize the entire Christian experience. Those two phrases right there summarize the entire Christian life and experience. You trust into Jesus as the cornerstone of your eternity and you trust into Jesus as the cornerstone of your everyday life. Now, if you're here and you're a believer, you're a Christian, I'm assuming that you've trusted into Jesus as the cornerstone of your eternity. I'm assuming that you're trusting in Christ for your salvation. But here's the question I wanna get to the bottom of today. Are you trusting in Jesus as the cornerstone of your everyday life? You've built your eternity on Jesus. Are you building today's life on the person of Christ? Okay, to answer that, I want you to go back to the text one last time, 1 Peter 2, 6, because he's gonna say something that helps us get our minds around whether or not Jesus is actually our cornerstone of our everyday life or it's something else. 1 Peter 2, 6, here says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, watch what he says next, he says, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So in verse six there, Peter's quoting God from Isaiah 28, and God the Father is talking about his son, don't miss this, he's talking about his son, he's he's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone, all the way back in the Old Testament, Jesus is the cornerstone, and then he says that Jesus, the cornerstone, is chosen and precious, and with those two words, he's describing how much he values Jesus. When he calls Jesus chosen and precious, here's what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is the single most important, single most valuable thing in all the universe to him, okay? Now, listen carefully, don't miss this. Every one of us has a cornerstone. Every one of us has someone or something we are building our lives on. So how do you know what it is? How do you know what your cornerstone is? What the scripture is teaching us is that whatever is the most valuable thing in your life, whatever is the most precious thing in your life, that is your cornerstone. Whatever's most valuable, whatever is most precious, that is the functional cornerstone of your life you are building your life upon. And that's where our problem comes in. Because again, there are a lot of us in the room today that are trusting into Jesus as the cornerstone for our eternity, but we're trusting into a hundred other things as the cornerstone of our everyday life. Okay. And you know how I know that's true? Because I've seen it be true in my own life. If you were to ask me, if you were to say, Matt, what is the single most important single most precious thing in regards to your salvation, I instantly say Jesus. What's the most important thing for your salvation? Jesus. Um, There is no other name under heaven which men might be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Y'all with me? When I'm standing in front of God, if he asks me the question, why should I let you into my heaven? I'm gonna point to Jesus. I'm not gonna point at me because I'm not that great, but Jesus. 
I'm, his blood, <laughs> him, Jesus Christ, make no mistake, he is the cornerstone of my eternity. All right? But if you ask me, okay, what's the single most important, single most precious thing of your everyday life? If I'm honest, I got to pause and I got to think about it. And it's not always Jesus, okay? So how do we know for sure? How can we know for sure if we're looking to Jesus as our cornerstone or we're looking to someone else or something else as our cornerstone? Here's how you can know. Here's how, how you can know. You can know for sure what's your cornerstone by answering a couple of questions. I'm gonna put them up on the screen. Let's look at the first one. If I lost blank, I couldn't live. Here's the second one. If I didn't have blank, I couldn't make it. I want you to take a second and I want you to think about what you'd honestly put in that blank. If I didn't have my spouse, I couldn't make it. If I didn't have my job, I couldn't make it. If I didn't have my children, I couldn't make it. If I didn't have my wealth, I couldn't make it. If I didn't have my health, I couldn't make it. Or... Would you say, if I didn't have Jesus, I couldn't make it? Sagemont, whatever you would put in that blank, whatever you would put in that blank, whoever you would put in that blank, that is what is most precious to you, and whatever is most precious to you, that is your cornerstone. So many of us, if you were just ask us, hey, what's the most precious thing in your life? You'd say Jesus, but if we're given a truth serum, there's a lot of other things we're putting in that blank. I'll show you what I'm talking about. <clears throat> a guy named Tim Keller is a pastor for church in New York. He wrote a book called Encounter with Jesus. And in the book, Encounter with Jesus, he told the story of this young girl. She was um, in her early 20s. She was single. She went to his church. Pastor Keller was preaching a sermon on Christ and the value of Jesus and giving your life to Christ. And she walked up to him after the sermon and she was visibly upset. He asked her what was wrong, and here's what she said. And what she said is very telling about what we're talking about today. <laughs> she says, what's wrong? She looks at him and says, Pastor, nobody will take me out on a date. That kind of took him back. He said, I'm sorry, yeah, what, what do you mean? What, wh why is that upsetting you or whatever? And she said this. She said, I know God loves me. I know I'm a Christian, and I believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. But then she said, but what does that matter if no one will date me? Y'all are laughing, but y'all do the same thing. I'm about to show you. <laughs> All right, think about what she said. She said, I know God loves me, but what does it matter if nobody will date me? When she said that, she revealed what her actual cornerstone really was. What she revealed is that Jesus was not her cornerstone. She wasn't building her life on Jesus. What her actual cornerstone was, was dating and marriage. Jesus wasn't her cornerstone. Dating and marriage was the single most valuable, important thing in her life because a person that actually has Jesus Christ as their cornerstone, here's what they're gonna say. They're gonna say, it doesn't matter if anybody will date me because I know God loves me. It's a big difference. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've seen that exact same scenario played out in my ministry. I can tell you, so many stories of people that from all outward appearances look like they were building their lives on the person of Jesus until a storm came. 
And then when the storm came, it revealed they had not built their lives on Jesus, but a foundation of sand. Tell you the story about the person that spent their whole, I mean, whole lives in church until the cancer diagnosis came. And when the cancer diagnosis came, they walked away from God completely. Why? Because Jesus wasn't really their cornerstone. Their health was. I can tell you a story about the guy who lost all of his wealth, all of it, on a bad business deal. And when he lost all of his wealth, he also lost his wife. And when the dust settled, he completely walked away from God. Why? Because at the end of the day, Jesus wasn't his cornerstone. He wasn't building his life on Jesus. He was building it on his wealth. That's when he lost his wealth. He walked away from the Lord altogether. I could tell you a story about my buddy that's the, that was the really pretty famous, very successful pastor. Got involved with another woman and lost everything. Two years later, put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Why? Because Jesus was not his cornerstone. Even though he was a pastor, Jesus was not his cornerstone fame and success was. I can tell you the story about the sweet widow that had been married to her husband for 50 something years and when her husband died um, what she experienced went beyond sadness and grief which is completely and totally understandable but it went way beyond that into utter and complete despair. She couldn't go on. Why? Jesus was not her cornerstone. Her husband was because they built their lives on those things. When the storm came, everything fall apart, fell apart. But the, the question is this, you gotta get to the bottom of how you would honestly answer this question. If I didn't have blank, I couldn't make it. If I didn't have blank, I couldn't make it. Because if there's anything else in that blank other than Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ is not your cornerstone and it's a matter of time before a storm comes into your life and you will discover that you have built your life on a foundation of sand. And Jesus himself in Matthew 7, 27 told us what's gonna happen if you're building your life on a foundation of sand. Verse 27, he said, and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against the house and it fell, and great was the fall. But he goes on, he says, but if Jesus is your foundation, if Jesus is actually what you put in the blank, if he's actually what you're building your life on, if he's the most precious thing to you, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 25, he said, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And so listen, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, could not be any clearer. There is one foundation. There's one cornerstone. There is one rock that's still gonna be standing when the storms of life have come and done their best, and that is the rock of Jesus Christ and him alone. So in 1 Peter 2, 6, Peter tells us that's how you make Jesus your cornerstone. You believe into him. You trust into him as the most precious, the most valuable thing in your life, okay? Last thing he tells us is he tells us why it's so critical that Jesus and not someone else or Jesus and not something else be our cornerstone. And he echoes what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 25. But look at verse six again. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and then he says, whoever believes in him, who actually trusts in Jesus as their cornerstone, he says, will never be put to shame. So he says, Jesus is our cornerstone, and if you'll do that, if you'll believe in him, if you'll trust in him as the single most precious thing in your life, here's what that phrase means, you'll never be put to shame. It means you'll never be disappointed. It means you'll never be let down. Now listen, he's not saying you're never gonna be disappointed in life. He's not saying you're never gonna be let down in life. He's saying that Jesus will never let you down and that Jesus Christ will never disappoint you. And guys, you know what I've discovered? He's right. He's right. It's a bold claim, but he's right. My wife and I have been married 25 years this summer. Besides Jesus, she's the greatest blessing God's ever given me, hands down. We have a fantastic marriage. We're best friends. I'm more in love with her today than I was the day I married her. But here's what both of I, both she and I have discovered over the last 25 years, is that spouses make really bad cornerstones. Single people, those are married people clapping. Welcome to the club one day. <laughs> one of the greatest blessings you'll ever have in your life, but they make really bad cornerstones to build your life on. Money, health, your children, your reputation, they all make really, really poor cornerstones. You know why? Because it's a matter, if those things are your cornerstone, it's a matter of time before the storms of life come in and take that thing away from you. It's a matter of time. Life will take away spouses, it'll take away your money, it can take away your children, it can take away your reputation, but Peter is screaming from the rooftops, not so with Jesus. Jesus is the only one that you can build your life on. He's saying build your life on him, put him in the blank, make Jesus your cornerstone, and then no matter what storm comes in your life, you'll still be standing on the rock. So I wanna to end today with a story. A story about a young man that I saw actually be forced to live it out. And it made all the difference in the world in his life. His name was Colt McCoy. Um, Colt was four-year starter at the University of Texas. Um, during his four years, he broke every record for quarterbacks in UT history. On top of that, when he finished his career, he ended up being the winningest quarterback in college football history. It's since been broken, but after his last game, he'd won more games than any quarterback in college football history. And um, he started attending my church in Austin his freshman year. And I never got to meet him until his senior year. We both just happened to be at Whole Foods at the same time. And we bumped into each other and we started talking. And he said, Matt, he said, you know what? I've actually been meaning to call you or reach out to you, he said, this is my senior year. He said, I have a ton of pressure on me. And he just was very honest with me right there in Whole Foods. He said, I wanna, I wanna win the Heisman. Our team is one of the top favorites for the national championship. I, I, for, I, I didn't jump in the draft last year, my junior year, because I wanted to win those two things. I wanted to win the Heisman. I wanted to help our team win the national championship. And, and he said, I'm just under a ton of pressure and I would love to meet with you. And so we did once a week. We started meeting um, every Tuesday morning. We got together for about an hour. We prayed together, went through scripture together. 
we talked, and through that time we became friends. And because he wanted those two goals so badly, he gave up. He was he was uh, expected the year before to go in the the early top like round one of the draft. And back then, you got a lot of money for being a quarterback in the first round. That was before they put a cap on it. And he forego millions of dollars to come. And so because he had given up so much and he wanted those two goals so badly and we sort of became friends, I started rooting for him to get those two goals too, which is crazy because I woke up one day and it hit me, I'm rooting for a Longhorn, right? From the time an Aggie is little, they teach you one thing. You don't root for Longhorns. And Thanksgiving was coming. So far, they were undefeated. He'd been playing great. He's still the front runner for the Heisman, still the front runner for the national championship. But I knew that if the Aggies beat the Longhorns, that they would lose their shot at the national championship, and he probably wouldn't win the Heisman, and his draft status would fall. And so I was in a dilemma. And so... True story, you can ask my wife. My whole family is Aggies, and so I did not go to Thanksgiving with my family so I could stay alone and root for Colt McCoy to win that game. So Colt ended up, they won. They made it to the national championship. He's still front-running for the Heisman. Days before the game were super intense. In so many ways, like, his entire career was coming down to this one game. If he did well, he's probably going to win the Heisman. His team wins the national championship, and he pretty much guaranteed goes really high in the draft. If he loses the game and doesn't do well, his team doesn't win the national championship. He loses the Heisman, probably falls in the draft, and then everything he forego and worked for for that year was for naught. And so he was super nervous. Not before the game. He's in his hotel. He's all by himself. And so I text him. I just texted him a, a scripture. I said a few words after the scripture, but here's the scripture that I texted him. It's Isaiah 26, 3. Scripture says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. I text Colt those words. And I just said a few sentences afterwards. I said, brother, I'm, I'm asking God that you win this game. But I, I said this. I said, no matter what happens tomorrow, I want you to trust the Lord because he is your rock. He didn't respond. I, I knew he was busy. I didn't know if he got it or not. Game started. Longhorns got the ball and Colt was on fire. He said that everything that Coach Brown had taught them about what the Alabama defense was going to do. That's exactly what they did. Colt was driving him down the field, went five for five. For those of you who don't know football, he threw the ball five times. He completed five passes. He got them all the way down to the goal line. First possession, they're about to score. That particular play, when they're <coughs> right there at the goal line, one of this huge Alabama defensive linemen broke free, came around the end and hit Colt in the arm, took him down. Didn't look like that big of a hit. He'd been hit like that a thousand times. But when Colt got up, I could tell something was wrong because his right arm, his throwing shoulder was sagging. I was like, something's not right. They took him to the sidelines. They brought the, the backup in and they, they took Colt into the locker room. 
They brought his dad in there in the locker room. And they, he was trying to throw the football to his dad. And he said something one time that I get choked up thinking about. It. He said, Matt, I, I've thrown to my father a million times. He said, but the one time that mattered the most, I couldn't throw it to my dad. He couldn't throw the ball. It was a pinched nerve in his arm. So they took him out of the game and he spent the entire game on the sidelines. Longhorns ended up losing the game and he was devastated. He was devastated. He knew what the implications of that loss was, would mean and he was right. In many ways, that one moment, that, that, that one hit, that, this one injury in many ways would redefine the entire rest of his life. They lost the national championship. Alabama began their reign of glory that's still going on. He ended up not winning the Heisman that year. He fell to the third round of the draft, literally lost tens of millions of dollars. And in that moment on the sidelines, he knew it. After the game, the media swarmed around him. This reporter walks up to him. Everybody's around him. This reporter walks up, sticks a microphone in his face and asks him this question. She said, what, what was it like stand on the sidelines and watch your team and not be out there with him. He pauses, starts getting choked up. You can tell he's fighting back tears. Then he began to speak. I want to show you the video. Watch what he says. Texas quarterback Colt McCoy. Colt, what was it like for you to watch this game, your, your last game in a Longhorn uniform from the sideline? <laughs> uh, I... I love this game. I have a passion for this game. I've done everything I can to contribute to my team. And we made it this far, and, and it's unfortunate I didn't get to play. I, you know, I, I would have given, I, I'd have given everything I had to be out there with my team. But congratulations to Alabama. I love the way our team fought. Uh, Garrett Gilbert stepped in and played as good as he could play. You know, he, he did a tremendous job. And, uh, I always give God the glory. I never question why things happen the way they do. Uh, God is in control of my life. Uh, and I know that nothing else, I'm standing on the rock. Man, did y'all catch that? I always give God the glory. God is in control of my life. And if nothing else, I know I'm standing on the rock. Here's the deal. Colt knows that what he lost in that moment pales in comparison to what other people have lost. He knows that so many countless other people have gone through much more difficult and much more trying things. But I want you to keep in mind that here's a young man that just lost everything he'd ever wanted and everything he'd ever worked for from the time he was eight years old to that moment. The world had just taken away all of his hopes and all of his dreams except the one thing that the world can never take away. And that's Jesus. And by the way, that, that one moment had more of an eternal impact than Colt could have ever imagined. Because the world had seen professional athletes give glory to God when they won the biggest game of their life, but they never seen an athlete give glory to God when they lost the biggest game of their life. That's what he just did. A couple people text him that night. One, you, two, you've probably heard of. One was Peyton Manning. Peyton texts Colt that night. 
Another guy you've heard of before, texted him, a guy named Barack Obama. And they both asked him the same question. How in the world did you do that? How in the world did you, in that moment of your life, give glory to God? And I honestly don't know how he answered them. I never asked, but I do know the answer. I do know the answer for how you give glory to God when the world takes away all your hopes and your dreams. And here's the answer. Jesus already told us how to give glory to him when the world takes away all our hopes and dreams. In Matthew 7, 25, he said, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That's how you do it. So here's the thing. Church, those moments are coming for you. That moment is coming for you. It's coming for me. And so if there is anyone or there's anything that's in that blank, I want you to take them off and I want you to put Jesus there. Doesn't mean you don't love other people. Doesn't mean you don't value other people. It just means that you don't make them your cornerstone. If you'll do that, when those moments come, when the storm comes, you'll be standing on the rock.